What's up, everybody? We've got a banger for you today on the Boston Ski Party. I say that for a multitude of reasons, but the main one being that we got ski industry legend Matt Sturbins on the horn. If you're unfamiliar with Sturbins, it's time to wake up. The sport of free skiing isn't what it is today without him. His story begins as a Midwest kid who moved out to California in the late 90s to become a pro skier. In 2002, he found himself unhappy with his ski sponsors, so he decided to start his own brand, which you may know as Forefront Skis. We get into his mindset behind launching Forefront and the journey that the company would take over the next 15 years. His skis would go on to reach the highest of heights with more than a few X Games medals, some of the dopest film segments I've ever seen, and an Olympic gold medal from his company's pro team. In 2017, Forefront then sells to Jason Leventhal and Sturban was on to greener pastures, literally. Shortly after leaving Forefront, he would start Wonder Skis. Wonder Skis is one of the most interesting, innovative, and sustainable ventures in the ski business right now, as they've taken on an entirely new way of constructing skis. Also exciting, but a little less exciting, Mr. Matt Berkowitz, our brand director here at TSM, sat in on this one to co-host with me. He and Sturbins go way back. Their relationship dates back to 1997, when they were just a couple young whippersnappers, exploring an entirely healthy relationship with alcohol in Whistler Village. Over the years, they have continued to cross paths through skiing and working in the ski industry. Maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think Berkowitz is the second coolest Matt on this episode. Congrats on top three, buddy. Enjoy the show. Holla. Is what it is, man. It is what it is, man. It is what it is, man. It is what it is, man. It's cheap, too. <laughs> Duskymaster.com. You, I mean, I met you the first time, I think, at Powder Week one year. And that was the first time right. that you and I met. And I still tell that story of that day. Like, I'd met you that morning, and then I was skiing with you. And we did that that uh, Three Forks hike, and the weather kind of got <laughs> gnarly. I still tell the story. We get to the end, and you're, like, crawling up, and you're, like, looking back at me, and you're, like, I think we went a little too far. I'm like, no shit, dude. <laughs> no shit. The, if the wind is like whipping over the top. I'm like, I'm going to, Matt Sturman is going to kill me. We're going to die. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was a good yeah, icebreaker. It was a good icebreaker to, 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 to meet you. Though. That, that was kind of fun. So, cause I still tell totally. that story where you're like, I was like, I'm on a ridgeline with Matt Sturman's and this is it. This is how I go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I'm probably thinking the same. Like, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill us both. I'm just trying to like get him to like like my skis, and I killed us. We had a good time. Uh, that's great. Yeah, nice. yeah. Well, yeah, that's cool, man. I mean, that's so great that you guys were able to go back to the ski test at Jackson Hole. I mean, uh, Berkowitz and I, we obviously cut our teeth really uh, with yeah. ski tests. Um, what what felt like maybe a decade of continuous Powder Weeks there with Powder Magazine, rest in peace. And man, we learned that mountain so well, and it, it it did turn into like, okay, how many runs are you going to take today? And uh, you know, if the inbound conditions weren't all time, we could always find all time conditions outside the boundary. And so sometimes you would just take like a lap in the morning and then a lap in the afternoon, and like that's it, call it a day, yeah. you know. And and that was just such a cool way to experience test, like meeting, like skiing with testers and journalists and photographers. And other brand, um, you know, product managers and stuff like that. It was just a total departure from the norm. You know, I, I've banged out, you know, lap after lap on stickered top sheets with Ski Magazine in Colorado. And, you know, I've done a lot of other tests here locally in Utah. And 
and heck, I've done some, I've done some tests even back east. Um, and Powder Magazine did a great job there with with the Jackson Hole run, and and I think the, the spirit carried on for sure in the Big Sky. It was just different skiing. I mean, we all went from skiing full reverse cambered skis. I remember like after the first year, um, you know, at, at Big Sky, I came back and and everybody's like, "How was the test?" You know, and like historically. Um, you know, Forefront had like really won over the testers at, at Jackson Hole Powder Week year every year. And that was a big part of the momentum that we created as a brand back then. And I, I remember coming back from the first year uh, after Big Sky. And I was like, well, the, you know, the, the partying hasn't slowed down a bit. I think it's actually intense. I think it's actually intensified. Um, <laughs> there's like a, I mean, there's like a 300 person capacity hot tub, like next to the chairlift. Yeah, it was, um, it was nuts. For example. Yeah. But, uh, and everyone's eating there. The everyone, thing. all the, all the people there that are paying to be there are eating like this fancy <laughs> breakfast and fancy lunch. And like all the powder people are walking into that area to get like that full spread of food, just like getting like pretty much like stuffing their pockets with the bacon, you know? And people are like, what the fuck yeah. is going on? That, that, yeah. that, that buffet was absolutely oh, all, time. all time, all time, all <laughs> time. We ate really well, and then and we skied a lot of chalk. I remember it was like, yeah, yeah. cool. The, the conditions are um, are firm, and it's a much different type of snowpack than what we were used to down in Jackson for the the string of events there. So I came back and I was like, cool. We need to we need to start putting metal in our skis. Yeah, I mean, I swear, <laughs> I, that was like my first takeaway. I came back and I was like, all right, here's what we're doing, team. Like, we're gonna rebirth the MST. Um, we're gonna get some metal. Um, we're going to narrow up the waistline. Um, we're going to stiffen up the tail. Like this thing is going to see a complete makeover. We're going to launch it on 15 years and, um, we're going to get ourselves back in the game. And I, and I remember, I, I remember I, Burke, you're probably with me. I was just hot lapping everybody's skis yeah. right off that, uh, Ram charger chairlift. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, what skis at the time had, had the edge hold that I think actually like wasn't terrifying in those conditions because they were great groomers, but holy shit, steep and firm and fast. And, um, those forgiving free ride shapes just couldn't hang. Yeah. Um, and I came back and I was like, dude, we're better than this. Like we've been so, we've been so drinking the Kool-Aid on soft snow and, um, yeah, re- released the MST 99 and then immediately got to work on the 107. And that was my last project at, at forefront before I sold it. But, um, yeah, I, rem- was, I remember that, re- that that released the next year. I didn't I didn't realize that the year before was the inspiration. That, that's pretty cool. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. I mean, those ski tests, like, like like you said, like I mean, you both you guys and kind of how I was introduced to Berkowitz too. Really, um, like you guys definitely cut your teeth in those events. I mean, that that's some yeah. pretty cool stuff, and you get exposed to a lot of other people's, you know, what they're making, and a lot of awesome skiers and people that are looking to kind of like take your skis for a ride and, and talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, so. You guys definitely cut your teeth with the ski testing, but you you and Berkowitz go back a, lo- a long ways. I mean, I, he Berkowitz tells me, wait, how did you guys m- meet again? Like, what what camp? Where were you guys at back? Like when you were young, Camp of Champions, Camp man. of Champions. Nin- that's nin- nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. Well before, uh, well before either of us actually worked in the ski industry. Um, the only yeah. two people skiing Fisher skis in North America at the time, I think. <laughs> actually, yeah, Matt, Matt was a Fisher athlete at the time. I was not. I was on a pair of. Uh, 191 centimeter K2 winter heat mogul skis. Um, yeah, yeah. So still have oh, fish in his blood though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who, it, it's it is kind of crazy that years later he hadn't sold his soul yet. <laughs> right, right. No, 
You know, it's cool too. Is like we had actually two kind of quasi adult campers. You know, I mean, we, we, we paraphrase them as adult, which is like, you're able to go out and drink with us that night. Um, so <laughs> it's a good that's how we it. kind of like, yeah, there was like, there was the kids you can't like who need to be back at the, you know, the camp, uh, hotel. And then there's like the campers who are actually going to want to go out. And then we would kind of divvy up which coaches, um, cause I ran the ski program for a bit over a decade and it was kind of part of like, all right, you get this spreadsheet and you have, you know, just really rudimentary information. You don't really know a lot about their skiing ability, but, um, that's where the majority of the insights should have been. But it was more so just like age, gender, you know, how many times, how many days a year do you ski? And so we would just kind of bucket all the, all the legal age drinkers <laughs> in one group with the, with like the coaches that had the most um, appetite for late night activities. Hmm. And then we would kind of parse out the rest of the coaches for who wanted to go to bed at night. And um, so obviously Matt and I were, were teamed up well in, in that capacity for, <laughs> really? for evening activities. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my, my evening activity started under a fake ID in, in Whistler, uh, to be fair. I would go up there in high school for world mogul camp. Um, and so that's something Matt and I obviously have a have a shared passion in history. Although separate, we we came into free skiing through moguls, and um, I would go up and ski, you know, with the World Mogul Camp. Um, Steve Desovich and Cooper Shell were running the camp back then, and I got to meet uh, a handful of, of of just super awesome, you know, mid '90s mogul stars, um, kind of pre pre Johnny Mosley, Nagano, um, Evan Divbig, Jean Luc Bessard. Uh, a handful of the greats from my time as a mogul skier and um, and then came back up to camp and, and kind of snuck my way into Camp of Champions as a digger and uh, you know they were hand digging half pipes back then so there wasn't a pipe dragon Jesus. Um, and Camp of Champions was unique on the glacier because they boasted their own pipe and, and it was a snowboard only pipe and they hand dug the half pipe um, and it, they, they took pride in the fact that it had like 18 foot walls yeah. and so they had a chain gang of snowboarders digging and the dig crew was super gnarly and, and, and very intimidating. And they would kind of hold down patios, almost like a bike gang in town. Um, <laughs> and it, they were just, their work ethic was mental, you know. Um, they were first ones up, last ones down. They worked seven days a week and they worked for six weeks straight. And they ended up realizing that skiers were a benefit um, to the dig process because we could level our weight as we split the pipe with two edges. And so their biggest thing was with a snowboard, you're riding either toe or heel side and you're creating waves as you're trying to move the snow down to the bottom of the transition because they would just basically snap a line and then cut the lip with a, with a spade shovel straight down. And then everybody would kind of come in and excavate the belly of the tranny out. Hmm. And so they actually saw value in skiers coming through and helping move that snow. And so I snuck in with a handful of skiers from Hood and was just hiking pipes and slipping the walls. And that gave us access to skiers to the to the the Camp of Champions Park. And then they started realizing, hey, you know, actually this, this whole ski thing's growing and these skiers aren't that bad. We should we should open it up to skiers. And and Berkowitz was one of the first kids to come up on skis to Camp of Champions. And ironically, there was also another um, member of the Fisher Ski Dynasty um, that uh, also, you know, was, was a camper at one point. And I, and I later came across, um, you know, in industry events and stuff. So it's, it's kind of cool how, people who we um, kind of introduced to the camp for the first time ended up making a way into the, into the industry after that and kind of getting a bug as well. So um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lineage and history with how Camp of Champions kind of 
played a role in our lives and cool yeah, enough yeah, I got to yeah, sit yeah, down with the, yeah, the founder yeah. of the camp not long ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. Berkowitz talks about it all the time. That's to be a, honest that, with you. Yeah. That, that, it's a lie that I, <laughs> I actually don't, but it, uh, just like you said, I mean, it, it definitely, it was a big part of, you know, shaping and really solidifying the fact that I, you know, wanted to, to stay in the industry and work in the industry. Obviously at, at one point thought it was going to be on the athlete side, which realized pretty quickly was not going to be the case. But, um, you know, I have told these guys just, it, it is pretty ridiculous that first year in 98 that I think there was 13 or 15 skiers. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be, to be one of those at the camp. And I think, I think Ken had to, Ken Achenbach who, who ran the camp, I think he had to cap it the next year at like 200 skiers. So the, it went from, from 98, the year that Johnny Mosley, you know, won in Nagano and, and, and did his 360 mule grab and, you know, skiing really took off that from like 98 to 99, specifically up there. Um, and I just remember hearing from, hearing from you, hearing from Ken and, and being like, Hey, if you're planning on coming back, you better sign up early because this thing, this thing yeah. is going off. And well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a start of free skiing. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, yeah, it, it was legit the start of free skiing. And you know, and for you, Sturbins, I mean, obviously being on Fisher at the time, you clearly had some kind of thought in your brain where you're like, I can't get exactly what I want. I can't get someone to build me what I'm looking for. And so, like, how did that even come into your your thought process? Like, maybe I should start my own ski company. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I mean, this is this is a story you can't make up. It's <laughs> it's true. It, it's indicative of the, of where we were at at the time. Um, you know, free skiing was kind of the only real like um, formal way that the European brands were receptive to free skiing early on. Um, because you know the snowblade or the ski board uh, had 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 come out right, and so there was like that thing going on, and then free skiing comes next, and they're like, okay, this is just going to be another thing like the snowblade has become, but then border cross or skier cross started, and so early on when Freeze Magazine was doing the U.S. Free Skiing Open, they would incorporate skier cross as, as one of the events, so it was slope style skier cross and big air. And half pipe, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, the uh, the European brands would get behind skier cross, and skier cross became free skiing. So then they started to actually back it a little bit. But the twin tip full length twin tip skis were still like crazily misconstrued in terms of what they were being asked to do. And so I remember going up to Campus Champs, you know, and I had kind of just gotten on a product flow with Fisher via my homie Will back in Tahoe who was a sales rep for them and he just saw me parking cars at Squaw and was like, dude, I, I see you here every day. You're on the mountain. Like I'm a rep for this brand. Let me get you some skis. And, <laughs> and of course the first skis he had to give me were border cross or skier cross skis, flames, you bet everything, you know, I tail size logos, flames off the tips, <laughs> the whole thing. Sick. And at the time I was like skiing like some Seth Morrison, you know, whatever. Um, so it was cool. It was really cool to have that. But then I go up to camp and I, and I, and I see these, I see these, this, this crew of, of, uh, of skiers that have been, you know, welcomed into camp of champs as diggers on skis like Berkowitz showed up with one year, but had bolted on little plastic twin tip tails. And they were like just flowing around the mountain skiing backwards, all casual, but with like size 190 skis that were not like 
awkwardly shaped like mine. So we actually went into the industrial uh, park of, of Whistler known as Function and went to a metal shop and had them bend up some metal plates with a five-hole pattern and took those plates into the into the village showcase where the the camp had like a shop sponsor and they let us in the back shop and we I'm not kidding you we took this flat tail skier cross ski and these pre-curved aluminum metal plates and sandwiched them together in a vise hips sticking up towards the ceiling got the heat gun out and just started heating up the tail of the ski and so it <laughs> fell over and and met the metal plate <laughs> That's and awesome. then we just drilled holes through the metal plate. <laughs> And, and back then, <laughs> snowboarders were still peanutting their stances because the boards weren't coming with wide enough hole pattern. Right, yeah. Because it was like a scene to have like incredibly baggy pants and then have like a, a slot or two wider than standard stance width. Right. And so it was still common for snowboard shops to have peanuts where people could add their own inserts outside the suggested stance frame. <laughs> and so we just used those peanuts to mount those plates onto my skis. And next week, I was up there digging the pipe and skiing backwards. And I was That's like, this insane. is so cool, you know? Yeah. It's also <laughs> And then the next year, <laughs> totally, you know, and then the next year I, I, I was lucky enough to, to get, you know, some attention from Fisher and, you know, one of, one of Matt's former colleagues, Dave Alley was working at Fisher, who was one of the campers um, that I mentioned earlier, um, who came through Camp of Champs and ended up at Fisher. And, and he was like, Hey, like you need to meet these guys from Europe that are sitting in the back room. And, and I was like, Hey, I've been, you know, basically, uh, you know, augmenting your skis to work for this application. And, and you guys have this prestigious race heritage. Why wouldn't you come out with a serious ski for this application? And, and they're like, almost like just like accepted the challenge. Yeah. And so the next year we had white skis, you know, and, and they were sandwich construction, you know, and, and, and ended up being a commercial model known as the uh, Airstyle air MT. Air, yeah, Airstyle. And um, yeah, they, they said test on the tail. So we all had. There was like Hoji was trying them out back then, and Mark Adma was on this yes. year. Uh, Chris, Chris Turpin, Dave, um, um, uh, oh, uh, not Dave, but uh, Oakley White Allen yeah. uh, was on them. And uh, anyhow, we all just like took a magic marker and wrote Ickle after test. So we were all on Fisher testicles that summer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like we got that ski off the ground and went to market, and then they were just kind of like, cool. Like you got like this has been a great project, Matt. We're psyched to work with you. It's coming up on the 2002 Winter Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. Bodie Miller is going to win the whole thing. USA Today was recognizing him as like Athlete of the Year, and there was a ton of momentum as you as you may or may not remember um, around those games for the US Alpine team, and they were going to put their innovation focus back on ski racing. And mm-hmm. I remember trying to make it trying to make a deal where we would actually expand the twin tip free skiing range um to open up to wider wider profiles and alternative cameras and and they were just like yeah you you i can't believe you're asking for more um it's unbelievable what you already got and so i just said cool you can keep it and i started forefront that's awesome that's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, because from the outside looking in, it's it's such a cool story. And at the time, obviously, being a fan of the brand, you know, like all these major manufacturers, and we talk about it a lot internally that that time of of skiing, like everyone really missed it. They missed it. There was this huge kind of yeah. this new wave and this new thing happening, and and nobody wanted to do it. And it was like, as like a a young person that wants to associate themselves with something cool, you know, you had like Line Armada and then Forefront, and like you're like, yo, all those th- that's me. You know, 
um, mm-hmm. which was, which is really rad, but even more rad from like an entrepreneurial side of things, like where, where I get really interested is how does somebody like yourself, like professional athlete skier decide I'm going to start a ski brand, call it forefront. Cause it's a dope ass name. And then build the skis or get someone to build them for you and then take the product to market. Like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a wild, wild thing. Yeah. Well, back then life was a lot simpler because we didn't know shit. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, you know, like and, not, it, we got so many, we got so many scars now of making poor decisions that we have to think twice about some things that <laughs> back when we were younger, we would just go for it. Like, Hey, do you think I could jump that driveway? Like, yeah, you go for it. Just, Get just, a lot of speed and hit the culvert <laughs> super fast. Just go fast, go super fast, bro. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh shit, you went over the bars. Like I've never seen that before. And you're like, all right, that's called OTB. I'm not going to do that again. And, uh, you know, like you kind of have to carry on with life with that scar. And I guess I, back then, I was, you know, in early 20s, um, didn't have those scars yet. And so I was like, cool. Like I mean, I know a friend in town here, and uh, well, back then I was living in Truckee, California, and I had a friend making snowboards and he parted ways with a partner and had a press that he kind of Jerry rigged in his garage. And he's like, I can help you make those if you want. And, you know, we made, we made a couple pairs just to kind of prove point. And, uh, and then we eventually just started interrogating domestic supply chain and found, you know, snowboard factories, um, were fairly abundant back then. I mm-hmm. remember there was a statistic from SIA that at some point in time, there was like snowboarding's here. And it was like, cool. Like all of a sudden there's like 20 manufacturers at the SIA snow show in Vegas. Um, debuting all these snowboards and then like the next sequential year there was over 200 snowboard exhibitors jesus. yeah jesus i mean it, it, it and like the, it changed the entire scope of the show and like back then that the I, that, we're not going to go into detail what that show became because <laughs> it was absolute chaos but it was the biggest thing on snow i mean all the all the all the team videos were debuting like all the riders were going to the show there was massive parties. There was huge contests still happening in, in Vegas with crushed snow. They're building rail, um, rail jams and all kinds of stuff. And if you, if you were anybody in the snow industry, you went to the show mm-hmm. and it was a 24, it was a 24 hour affair. Um, yeah, you didn't, and you then didn't like the next for seven days, it was insane. No, you couldn't, you couldn't, you'd miss, you'd miss too much if you slept. Um, so obviously that gave way to drugs and alcohol. Like you wouldn't believe, mm-hmm. um, and there was all kinds of debauchery and not everybody got out of Vegas, you know, uh, swiftly. Some people ended up having, <laughs> Some people having to stay a little longer scars. to clean they still up. still have those scars. Yeah, They're yeah. Still in but, Vegas. Uh, <laughs> but so then like, yeah, so the show goes from 50 snowboard brands to 200 and the next year it's back down to 75. So when? Because people realize like, oh, I mean, there's only so many people who need a snowboard or like, right. cool, everybody got one and that's it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that we have actually kind of like a, a, a cap to our winter sport participation audience. And that's something that skiing has obviously had to, had to look hard at. And, and that's one of the big initiatives SIA continues to pound is to try to drive participation. So everybody bought a snowboard and then that was it. And there was no more demand. So then obviously there's a massive consolidation. So when, you know, we show up with Forefront five years later, um, you know, we're on the tail end where there's still businesses in, um, in place that, provide turnkey solutions for snowboard manufacturers they carry every piece of the material that goes into making a complete snowboard Mm. and you can just buy like one edge one top sheet like a couple yards of base or meters of base it was crazy 
And they were all going out of business as I was getting into business at the forefront. Wow. So early on, I was actually able to like take advantage of some of these like distribution houses that gave me kind of turnkey access to buy all the parts I needed to make skis. And then there was snowboard shops that were still winding down. Some were getting into making longboards and trying to find uses of their presses they had built for snowboards and other uses. And so I show up with skis and they're like, sweet. You're in right after the longboard dudes are out. You know? <laughs> I was like, cool. Get in line. Go ticket. <laughs> yeah, sweet. So we're like, we're all just like a bunch of new freaky kind of applications to try to make use of this, uh, this uh, you know, uh, pre-existing snowboard manufacturing infrastructure. So the first shop I started working out of was the back of some dude's dad's, uh, you know, insurance business. He was like a state farm agent who had a workshop in the back <laughs> of it in like Pasadena, California. And, uh, and you know, he was just, he, he, you know, he wanted to make, you know, a dream possible for his son. And he had this extra bay of, of uh, industrial, you know, square footage. So he let his son come in and, and, you know, bring some machines in and start making snowboards. And that turned into longboards, which turned into also like early forefront skis. And then I met, I met, you know, engineers and suppliers of his through that exercise and eventually moved my way around the L.A. area. Just, you know introducing ski making to snowboard factories mm. where they saw a, a reduction in snowboard volume and they saw skiing to be kind of an uplifting opportunity. And, uh, I ran up and down the West coast of the U S and Canada for the first like four years, five years with forefront building skis there. And then eventually realizing that we are spending a disproportionate amount of time trying to build our products when there's a limited window of opportunity to really like cement the brand position in the market because now these European race brands who didn't really care to invest in ski in, in, in free ride, were starting to pay attention to the impact that we were starting to have. And so they started making the skis that we were asking them to make initially right? because we had kind of proved to them that no, this is a viable category. It's not snowblading. It's, 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 it's going to change the way that we look at skiing recreationally. And so we had to kind of like re re, uh, you know, kind of reprogram how we were looking to get skis built. So we actually sampled skis one year out of uh, um, a snowboard factory in Vancouver, British Columbia called Option NFA at the time. Um, we were the first ski brands into their factory. We had a two-year manufacturing agreement. We delivered um, one year. We had sampled our second year. We're touring around at all the trade shows. We were getting heaps of negative feedback on the quality of our skis coming out of their factory that first year. And no shit between like SIA and ISPO, we were like ready to fly home and we were getting feedback from distributors at ISPO, which we had no business having distributors at five years old or whatever, but we did. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Matt, the quality has to really step up or, or we're going to have to part ways. And I remember we just, we said, cool. We just skipped our return home flight and rented a car and started driving to ski factories <laughs> around Europe. So sick. To see who would take us. And yeah. they're like, cool. Yeah. Like we would love to do this for you guys. And, and again, like, even over there, I was meeting with snowboard product managers. Like the first meeting I had at Elan was with a snowboard product manager. <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. Elan, like you make hundreds of thousands of skis. And my meeting is with a snowboard product That's manager. Crazy. And he's like, he's like, and I'm like, he's like, so what's your plan? Like, what's your go to market strategy? I'm like, well, we just like, we just got some orders at ISPO. And I got orders the week before at SIA. And, you know, our offer was like, we would deliver in September. And he's like, like September this year or next year? I was like, no, this year. Like right now. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> he's, like, oh, he's like, you got four models of speed. And 
and you you want me to make them and deliver them to you in six months? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like the, the, the ski guys just walk out of the room. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is a waste of our time. It's a lunatic no, in the dude, building. Yeah, but like the snowboard guy's like, no, nah, dude, like don't worry about them. I'll make this happen. And no shit he did. Wow. And that's so awesome. we, they, at the time, they had a limited grinding capacity. So, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, serial production, there's, there's big time automated, you know, finishing equipment that exists, German engineered. Um, it does a phenomenal job. But it has, you know, limitations, of course. And at the time, the grinding wheel capacity was only 135 millimeters wide. And so, you know, you think, okay, 135, that's a pretty fast ski. Well, not really. You think about a tip. Um, tips of skis, you know, can right. get to one, yeah. one, you know, 140 pretty easily. And you don't necessarily want to be like off the edge of the grinding wheel either. Um, so we actually had to split the collection, making things even more complicated. <laughs> we were able to actually make Steel Spence's and Nicholas Carlson's pro models there. But then um, my pro model and Vincent Dorian and eventually Eric Yorlison's pro models, we had to get made at a different factory that had wider grinding capacity. Because Elon even had wider skis than their own grinding capacity, but they had a sister factory just over the border in Slovenia, in, or into Austria from Slovenia. About a half-hour drive is all. And so they were actually pressing skis in their Slovenian ski factory and then driving them up to their Austrian factory to be finished <laughs> because they had the wider capacity for snowboards. That seems insane. And so, so it gets even more <laughs> insane because then, I, because then I call a friend who's in Switzerland who makes skis as movement. And they're like, yeah, you should go talk to our factory. We're looking to grow our, our, our partnership. Well, their factory is in Tunisia, in North Africa. <laughs> so I jump a flight to, to Tunisia, oh, from Slovenia to Tunisia. <laughs> and over the Mediterranean, I land in the city of Tunis. And I'm not kidding you. Like, I'm getting chauffeured up to the factory, passing like horse and carriage. <laughs> okay? And like my first time being in a country with Sanskrit and all that, because yeah. they speak French and they also have their native language. And at the time, like, I believe it's nestled between Algeria and, and Nigeria. I'm not sure, but there was a lot of political tension, too. So it was kind of a touchy move to even go there. But um, up in the far north region of, of Tunis, their capital city, there's like a free trade area where they've, um, you know, had some manufacturing set up where, like, Nidecker's been making some boards there in the past. Mm. Um, and then that's where the movement factory was. So. So I got in with them to make our wider skis and they also committed to delivering in this six month timeline. So I had to juggle two European supply chains, totally unravel things going on in Vancouver, BC, um, which was, which was a lot of fun. I almost died doing that. No joke. Um, but we ended up getting skis delivered. It wasn't in September, but I think probably by November we were able to deliver skis out of Europe from the sample skis we had made in North America that, that same year. That's, I mean, that's wild. Epic. Epic. Go into yeah. the desert to, to make it happen. Like I'm going to go into the yeah. desert to build skis to get delivered in September. It's incredible. It, I would. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, trade that experience. No. I mean, that's, that that's was awesome. so fun. It's awesome. It, it felt so crazy at the time. I remember like writing home to my mom. I'm like sending her an email. I'm like, mom, I'm in Africa. <laughs> She's like, a handwritten WTF. letter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what? Mother dear. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, been three months since I left. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I was still, like, in my mid-20s, calling my mom, like, three times a week. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and you, and so you just, I mean, you just threw out a bunch of very yeah. influential athlete names, you know? So how do you go, how do you go from being, you know, this, this brand that nobody's heard of in Truckee, California, press and skis in Jake from State Farm's dad's garage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to signing these world-class athletes? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that, and that also was a, like, a, that was a lot of this, like, this, this stride in my step, you know, like, I had made commitments to these people, these peers of mine that I was competing against in big air and folk style competitions to convince them to come over to forefront. And, and, and part of that allure was that they would be, you know, both hands on the design controls of the ski that they wanted to make. Because they were also suffering similarly as I was for product extensions from their sponsors. Yeah. So when shit was hitting the fan and the skis weren't coming out that well with the domestic suppliers that we had originally lined up, I had made a commitment to like deliver on this. And like, these weren't just like forefront skis. These were skis with people's names on them. Right. And, and these athletes were competing and, and they were relying on me to deliver them a ski that was capable of, of, of winning. Um, so that was like, a, that was a ton of responsibility for me. I mean, I didn't have any business craft, but I had like crazy like loyalty and respect for the team that we had built. And that, that drove me insane. So, um, I guess going back to your question, Matt, it's like, again, I, I wasn't unique in the situation I was in with, with Fisher at the time. I mean, at, Fisher's is a place, it's, it's a, it's a placeholder. You, you can drop in any European brand name right. you want with, with maybe the exception of Solomon and, and Rosin to an extent, they were fairly quick on it, but, um, you know, the classic ski race heritage brands were way off the back and a lot of athletes were skiing for them and, and they needed authentic support and, and, and I didn't have much money and I gave them all ownership. Yep. And mm-hmm. that was the first time probably anybody like even understood what equity was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was cool that they could like actually be part of this company from the inside out, not just be a poster boy and to also carry a bit of the responsibility that they're a designer and they're also endorsing what they created. So I relied on them to come to shows because, Hey, I'm trying to sell your, your creation. You know, this is, this is you. Uh, take ownership in it. Is that, is that uh, you want to get you know the big collaboration kind of started because I when I look at forefront, um, I always associate you know athlete collaborated product you know um, from right. the very, from the very jump. It, and so is that that initial push with people's names on the skis, you know, giving people equity. Hey, you, you got to have some ownership to what we're doing here. Let's come up with stuff that you want to ski for the applications that you're trying to to do out there. Is, is that how it kind of came to fruition? Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, what do you need that you're not getting? And how can we deliver you that, that shape or, or that, that, you know, whatever it is. Um, sometimes it's even just give you that respect to build your confidence yeah. to know that you're not on an Island, that you've got us behind you. And like, that was a big deal with David Wise. Like as we got into the later years of forefront, like the team roster continued to grow. And like, we, we eventually won every, every, event in the sport you know from do tour to x games to red bull cold rushes to i mean you name it dude i mean we were we were there we did it all including the olympics Mm -hmm. and 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 it built up to the olympics with david just because i mean yeah like maybe rosie didn't want to make like the all-time ski for him in the pipe but he just didn't feel like he was a valued member of the team at the time 
you know, and, and, and to no disrespect to, to Rosie, great group of guys over there, um, including our former Fisher colleague, David Ellie. Yeah. Um, and Matt Beers and the whole posse, they're great. But at the time, they had their own, they had their A list, right? I mean, there's only so many people that they could support at the top. Mm-hmm. And David was an emerging young skier coming out of Tahoe who I could relate to because I had spent a lot of time in Tahoe. And he was just a little bit outside the kind of, you know, the, the, the profile of your typical park skier. You know, he's, he was six foot, 200 pounds, you know, he could bench press 300 pounds. Uh, he could put a lot of force into a ski and he just didn't have that. He didn't have that ski and he didn't have enough attention. He hadn't, he hadn't yet accomplished enough in his career to earn that attention to warrant getting something built specific to his needs. And, and I was looking at it like, man, we've been chasing our tail in park and pipe for a minute. What's an opportunity? And I actually reached out to a fellow New Englander, um, Andy Woods, who was a pipe coach, who he and I competed against, um, you know, a lot through the years, including snow jams, which we probably don't have enough time to get to, but that <laughs> happened in, uh, at the Boston Expo Center. Yep. Um, we hit a quarter pipe top yes, there in right. Boston. Remember that? Holy, holy <laughs> shit! I, I kind of want to get back to that. But yeah. Let me finish with Andy. Um, so, anyways, Andy was looking. I was just like, "Hey, Andy, what's up?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm coaching the pipe thing. Like, whatever, it's cool." And I was like, "Right on." Like, "Hey, um, I need to ride back to Denver." Like, I just kind of like came in and I did like a Colorado Mountain shuttle here to Copper at the time, and I was actually there to ski with a European athlete, Laurent Favre, um, who we just started working with. And, uh, so I just kind of picked his ear on the drive home. Uh, he was going back to the airport. I hopped in his rental car, uh, serendipitous and coincidental. He was leaving at the same time I needed a ride. And I was like, Hey man, is there anybody on the USP like, like roster potential roster? Cause the Olympics hadn't happened or anything like that. And the USP, US free team team had just become like a thing because now we like had actual events named to the game. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, actually, David, David Wise would probably be interested in talking to you. And, and I'm not kidding you, dude. Like, <clears throat> three days later, I'm on the phone with David. Two weeks later, David flies into Salt Lake, and we're making skis in the back shop of Forefront. Mm. We go up to Park City, horrendous conditions. Skis are, like, you know, extremely aggressive. Built kind of almost to exactly what he was asking for. And he loved them. And, I mean... We had to like race through to get a few more iterative prototypes done, but three weeks after that, I'm in, I'm in Europe, and uh, at ISPO, and I find out secondhand that David Wise had won the X Games on our skis. Sick. And I, I just about shit myself. <laughs> and and from there, and from there, it just kept going, right, all the way through to Sochi, and and beyond, and then we started working with Alex Ferrer too. Um, who's, you know, incredibly talented pipe skier to his own right. Again, just needed skis that worked for him. And and how did Alex get into it? Because David led him a pair of skis. Yeah. And David was like, dude, try these. And Alex was like, dude, I just went three feet higher. Rotations came around cleaner. What's my phone number? You know, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden I was like, holy shit. Like, you know, you look at bump skiing, right? I don't know if I have ski monster, you guys sell those ID1 skis. But if you look <laughs> at bump skiing today, like, there's craft skis made for certain disciplines that just aren't really commercial skis. Yeah, yeah. But if you deliver the athlete that ski, they can take their athleticism to a level that can sometimes be unparalleled. Yep. And and I, I started to realize that was also an opportunity in free skiing. And we had just started to realize the importance that these skis provided. 
to these athletes. And so we kind of built like the first thoroughbred pipe piece. I would say maybe our mod to their, to their defense did because they had like pipe master or whatever. Pipe um, back when Tanner was just, yeah, the pipe plan when they were killing it mm-hmm. uh, with Tanner and the pipe. But we did something similarly with, uh, with David. And then eventually it was, it was a temporary benefit to Alex while we were still making them. And, uh, and I, and I look back and I think about the skis we made for Hoji over the years. I mean, 80 meter side cuts. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> 80 meters? <laughs> it, only so that he could keep up with Hugo Harrison. Right. You know what I mean? I'm like, Eric's like 140 pounds wet, you know? He has yeah. no business trying to keep up with a lumberjack <laughs> like Hugo, you know? But he thought, hey, if I could get him like a 112 with an 80 meter side cut, he'd stand a chance. And I mean, I guess he probably did. Um, He's proven us all he's capable of a lot. But, like, we made some just heinous-shaped skis without zero business tax whatsoever. There was no goal to, like, commercially succeed with selling these skis. It was all about how can we win more content? Yeah. How can we, like, land the closer part in that And, you know, we ran that, we ran that you know, basically um, to a fault. You know, we, we were so motivated by those results. And we just figured if, if we were the – if we were the top step of the podium, you know, the consumers would come. And, um, and to some degree they did. Yeah. So uh, it was a fun, it was a fun experience. Yeah. You mentioned David. So I have to say that it, your book is also pretty awesome. I have it. I read it to my son. So it's, it's well done. It's his Wonderful. Thank reading. you. Yeah. It's one of the books that, yeah, and, yeah. uh, where did the train sleep at night? I was talking about you not your oh, son. Oh yeah. Me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I've seen you dive into where the trains sleep at night. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, Matt, you bring up, you know, you bring up a good point there where, you know, forefront was built on, you know, athlete driven, athlete inspired, athlete owned and focused on making the best products for these athletes disciplines. And, you know, I remember talking to you about, um, about making skis for David and, and, you know, I'd been in your, in your facility in Salt Lake and seen you prototyping and, and testing skis. Yeah. And, and at that time, David was, I was lucky enough to be working with David on the, on the boot side of things. So, right. um, it was, it was interesting to see and talk to him about, you know, his transition of going from this, you know, very major, one of the top ski manufacturers in the world. And like you said, you know, no disrespect to anybody, but similar situation you were in or so many athletes were in, they just, they weren't getting the product that they necessarily needed because it was so specialized. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's pretty special. I think forefront will always hold a special place in, in a lot of people's hearts for that reason that, you know, you weren't necessarily focused on the bottom line at all times, which like you said, ultimately was probably part of, part of the demise, but, um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it made, it made forefront. I mean, it helped change the entire industry and, and forefront was for lack of a better term, just really cool. You know? Really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, yeah. I, I know Forefront to this day holds a very special spot in Ski Monsters' heart. Oh, definitely. Absolutely does. I mean, I think I've told you the story before, but it's, it's, it holds a special place in my heart because it was the first pair of skis we ever sold on SkiMonster.com. Yeah. The very first one. Forefront, I remember. Forefront Click. George and I were sitting in, in, a, in a bar in Nashville, New Hampshire. The, the, the peddler's daughter in downtown Nashville. <laughs> just popping off. I think I, I, think I was having like a... Some kind of who knows, like a clam chowder and like a Coors Light or something like that. And both of our fo- both of our phones go off at the same time. You know, you look at it and it's like this goofy email comes through, and you're like, "What the hell is this email?" And then you're like, "Holy shit, dude! We just we just we just sold a pair of skis. This is incredible." <laughs> Forefront oh, click. Man, I, 
That's so rad. I remember you telling me that story when we were big sky and to see how Ski Monster has grown now to become, you know, such an institution for East Coast skiing. And at the time, you know, Forefront had very little traction on the East Coast. You know, we were mm-hmm. we were in our Tahoe bubble and and uh, anything that sold outside the Rockies was like um, total bonus. And for that to be part of the legacy of Ski Monster is, is so rad. I appreciate you bringing that back up. No, That's so cool. No, I appreciate you saying that. It, it was one of those things like, you know, I'll never forget it because, you know, George and I looked at each other and we're like, what do we do? <laughs> we we gotta go box this up yeah, right where, now. Where do we where do we go? Uh, do we have to do we do it right now? Do we call them? Do we call the person? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, so, that's cool. So yeah, four, from, four from forever. We'll, we'll I'll have that. I'll think of that story like literally for the rest of my life, which is pretty sweet. So, but, right. go, but going. Yeah, from, I appreciate that. Yeah, and going from forefront to know you know transitioning to working with Jay Lev. I mean, that was kind of. A, maybe a unique thing because the whole time, like you just mentioned, like didn't have much traction on the East coast. You were in your little bubble. You know, you were so focused on getting your skis into ski shops for so long. And then once, you know, mm-hmm. the J ski thing happened, you saw pretty much a whole new way of someone else in our business doing business. You know, I mean, his direct to consumer, um, kind wow. of model is, is so different than all the other major manufacturers in, in the ski world. I mean, Seeing that must have been kind of a kind of a fun thing, and I'm sure you took a lot from that because it looks like your new venture kind of ventured that way as well. Yeah, I mean, Wonder Alpine has come out of a lot of the learnings from that transition, selling forefront to Jason Leventhal initially, which has now been sold on to another party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was the end of, of my of my stake of ownership because I retained ownership when transitioning um, the company's majority ownership to Jason. Um, I guess that was back in 17, but, um, yeah, there was, there was, you know, three things, um, uh, that were really, uh, empowering, uh, for me at the time. And it was obviously to start working with Jay, um, and, and just kind of learn from his legacy in the industry. Um, he's done some amazing things and launched some incredibly influential and pioneering brands and products. Um, obviously study, study direct to consumer. Um, you know, we had, already started to realize the opportunity there. Um, but we were, we were a brand built on a model that was not that. Mm-hmm. And so we were struggling with the conversion and, and we believed Jay, because he had that experience from the start, he would help us streamline that conversion. And third and, and, and probably most, most interesting to me at the time, which I think was downplayed by them because they didn't realize why. But at the time I was just super psyched to start learning about the East coast. Um, <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin, you know, I mean, if, if we want to take it back to my East coast roots, it's Chicago. Um, that's it, man. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't hang. I never, I've never lived in the Eastern time zone. Um, my parents now live in Florida, but you know, for the most part, and we would of course go to Florida over Christmas, which is brutal as a child who just wanted to ski. But, um, you know, I never got into the new England area, um, until my adult life and, and actually skiing took me there initially with that, that Boston Expo ski affair. Mm-hmm. Um, holy hell. Um, <laughs> it was really fun walking around Boston. Obviously, they took great care of us as athletes. We got to explore the downtown and, and you know, VIP bar scenarios and whatnot. So that was super cool. But, you know, I hadn't really done a whole lot of skiing back there, and I, and I definitely didn't totally know what that ski culture was like from the inside. I obviously had a lot of respect, still do, and, and – uh, and want to spend more time back there because I know the, the the passion for skiing is strong and the talents are, are tremendous. But just I was a Midwest mogul skier, moved west, and so to start networking with Jay, 
you know, I was like, hey, man, I want to come out. He's like, well, you don't need to. I was like, no, I, I really want to come out. Like, <laughs> I want to come out and hang out in, in Burlington, and I yeah. want to go to Stowe, and I want to, like, I want to, I want to see, you know, these conditions that everybody says are heinous, because I can tell, I can show you heinous in southern Wisconsin, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not much that I haven't seen just from my, my pursuits there. So, um, yeah, I mean, Jay was, uh, you know, I remember the kind of the first trip we, we, we sketched out a marker board and funny enough story, he and I, um, he like set up an office for forefront and, uh, he was downstairs and sharing an office with Mike Nick, um, uh, kind of a legend in his own right for, for freestyle skiing and, and ski boarding. Um, they kind of were in like a marketing office. Jay had one employee at the time. Um, still there. Um, but he just got this little cubicle basically upstairs from that spot in downtown Burlington. And that's where we were going to set up kind of like our, our headquarters for, for forefront and, and, and determine how we could network with somebody from his past in the area to kind of lead that. Mm-hmm. Like he had um, Taylor to help him lead with JC's. But first we were going to go out and get some pizza. <laughs> and he, I mean, um, first things first. Do you yeah, remember where you, know, you went? I don't know. I said one pizza joint in the square. I mean, it's like, <laughs> flatbread or something like that um and it was great and of, and, of, and of course like i did like a what are they called eddie toppers or something oh, like yeah. that like, eddie topper, yeah yeah i mean there's nobody who takes more pride in the cuisine and amenities of vermont more than jason leventhal everything is just in comparison to vermont's quality <laughs> and craftsmanship mm-hmm. and so i leave it up to him to order the drinks and he orders these beers right which I mean, it was like an 8% IPA oh, yeah. or something like that. And I, and I I think I may have arrived that day. So getting to the East Coast from the West Coast, like the day kind of flies by. And Anyways, I mean, I, I didn't have much in my gut. And we did the, we did a couple of beers, maybe a pitcher. And then he said, <laughs> we, get back to his, we get back to the cubicle. It's now nighttime. And, and he's like, cool, I got to run. I got to, you know, with Luke or his son or whatever. But I'll come back. And I was like, cool, I'm just going to start like just basically mapping out the general ledger of this business and we'll just figure out how to bucket this thing and and what we need and what we don't need and how we're going to unwind things we don't need to optimize for this new exclusive direct-to-consumer strategy this is after this is after a few heady topics dude i'm wasted (laughs) (laughs) i'm like i'm like i just kind of like really for the first time i'm like talking turkey with jay and i'm in his like cubicle and it's dark outside and i haven't gone to my hotel yet and i'm like eddie's covered out and i'm just like holy shit and i was like jay like don't leave me again like that (laughs) i was in a good spot (laughs) <laughs> so i hadn't i just i mean as, as like a domestic beer drinker from milwaukee like i just hadn't really had exposure to that kind of alcohol Dude, content i'm just like having the beers feel yeah, great you, and an man. hour later i'm just like holy shit yeah and um that was a, that was a fun experience so but but the, the net out the net outcome of that um was really strong we we spent like three days together we we uh we networked with our kind of first representative dan carton um, who helped Jay out with Jay's key stuff in, uh, in the past. And, and he took the lead and did a great job with it. And, and that gave me some support um, where Jay was kind of still sharing his time between both brands. But yeah, we, we had some hard conversations with, with a lot of partners to make that conversion happen. And it was kind of like almost necessary to have Jay take on the kind of lead role because then I could make him, you know, kind of the, the villain and just be like, yeah, you know, is this, this is the deal, you know? And, um, 
whatever. So the, the, the hardest part was probably just winding down the assets. I mean, Burke, you saw what we had built in yep. Salt Lake with the white room and everything and right. just kind of dismantling all that. I mean, it's crazy, like how much we value our possessions and the heritage with the businesses. But it's like some days Key Monster had to like, you know, boil down to a 10th of its current footprint. Like, what do you do with 90% of the possessions? Yeah. They mean so much to you, but like, you can't sell them. Right. You don't have enough access to storage right. to like warrant moving them around. You end up just like getting, you purge so much. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I still, even in the racks here at Wonder Alpine, I have some piles of things that I just like could not part with. But, um, yeah, it was just, it was a big, it was a big change. And, and then just like kind of work from the kitchen table, you know, was a totally new deal too, because I just thrive on like team, team you know uh vibe i like having everybody around me and collaborating and just yeah. kind of working in an open forum and with them back east i was just working from the kitchen table and and i'm just studying like analytics around conversions and all these things that i really didn't spend any time paying attention to previously i kind of hired people to look at that stuff mm-hmm. either externally or hired people internally to manage it so i was now kind of like in the guts of this business and and I, and I, you know, I had similar like moments like, like you and George did when you sold your first forefront. Um, I was really excited about, you know, watching people buy skis on the website more so than ever. Cause I saw it was a direct result of my effort. Yeah. Right. Um, awesome. But you know, winding down the team and winding down all those possessions and stuff like that was really hard. And it, and it kind of gave me perspective that like, I'm back to my childhood heritage. I'm, I'm more of a builder. I'm not much of a painter. You know, I started building skate ramps in the backyard when I was young and, BMX and skateboarding and, and when I was trying to carry the weight of a pro skier in Tahoe I was building custom homes for Bay Area millionaires mm-hmm. around the Truckee Tahoe area in the summers just to make ends meet until my travel budget kicked in you know depending on how much Matt wanted to give me um <laughs> not much you know it was it, it, it was it was a fair allowance um but you know it was never enough to like you know call it a day you know I mean the what is it going to be? Maybe five, 10 pro skiers of our lifetime will actually retire at the end of their career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, everybody's going to have to get a job. And, and I was no different. I had to maintain a job throughout. So, um, I realized I was just more of a builder and, and a lot of the things I was tasked to do to make sense of the D to C business was to take kind of like dismantle, deconstruct things, reduce the skew count by 50%, mm-hmm. you know, eliminate the lookalike products, um, to streamline the communications with our audience. And I was like, damn, like I'm going to decommission this model that I created that I thought was so rad that now doesn't play a role of relevancy in this new business. And, um, and about 10 months in, you know, I, was, I got an opportunity to, to kind of pivot and, and go and build something new. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, I almost felt bad leaving at the time I did because I was still learning so much from Jay, from Jay skis, um, about East coast skiing, you know, um, and I never, I didn't get enough of that, to be honest. Yeah. That, that did really, truly weigh in, you know. I mean, Jay was, you know, Jay was really, was really great to work with. And, um, and I was really digging the, like, the, the vibe of the East Coast skiing. Um, cause I was connected to it now more so than ever. And I actually had like an authentic in with the core crew, you know, cause I was part of a brand that was, that was headquartered there. Right. We weren't just communicating to there. We were Vermont. And that was cool. That was super cool because we had our base out here, um, but we never had a base there. And so I, I felt bad leaving at, at the time that I did. But 
but this is an opportunity to build something totally new. And um, well, yeah. again, it I mean, just kind of speaks to that. Yeah, I mean, you, you leaving, I mean, I guess at the time for people that were paying attention, I mean, obviously on the surface, it seems like a little strange of a move. You, know, you have like Matt Sturbin's lifelong ski builder, shaper, pro skier, leaves his company right. to go play with algae oil in California, you know, is just right. right? Cause you're like, Oh, that's kind of weird. But obviously there is more of an angle to that because look where you are now, you know? So with, with wonder, so it's just cool yeah. from, from us as like being fans of forefront and now a new brand and fans of you, of you. It's like, I guess I, what I have would have to ask you with wonder is that was it always your intention right away to kind of start uh, another ski company with this new way to build skis or was it more like was wonder born from, the fact that no one really listened to you or no other ski manufacturer was willing to rethink their own traditional ways. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't that anybody wasn't interested in listening. It was just, they weren't able to in, in, interpret what we were saying. Got you it. know, it, it, it came to them from such a different angle than anybody was expecting. They were like oil, like, we're here talking about oil, you know, it's not like I was walking around talking about plastic, right? you know, or I was talking about, you know, edges or rubber top sheets. Like I was talking about oil and people like, Hmm, good luck with that. Like here's a wristband for the party after the show. <laughs> this, this like, is good for two free beers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's solid. You know, like I got, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> I will see you there. Um, but I think this conversation's over. Um, so yeah, first year I was walking around the OR show in Denver. Um, you know, just with a jar of oil derived from microalgae and a couple of swatches of fabrics where we applied the oil to the fabric and it had like a wicking application benefit. And I really wasn't getting any traction. And I met with all of my respective peers through the years that were at the show um, and had great conversations, lots of obviously like encouragement, um, you know, professionally and personally to continue to pursue things. But I just realized we didn't have the fluency that was necessary to really get any traction with any partner at the, at the place and time that we were at with development. And so for us to move that oil through to something that was more relevant to those, to that audience, we had to build a product. Mm -hmm. And so immediately after coming back from the show, um, you know, the company that I had left J skis for to become part of called checker spot, a startup biotechnology company out of San Francisco, um, you know, deriving oils from microalgae, using fermentation, which is super cool and clean and pure and has a super lean carbon footprint to take that oil and turn it into something rigid that I could then incorporate into a consumer product good um, was the next opportunity. And then obviously product good application for me would be key. Mm -hmm. So we actually use that oil as a base input to create the first of its kind rigid hard foam derived from microalgae. It's a polyurethane foam that we were able to cut up and vertically integrate with Aspen in the core. And then, you know, build the rest of the sandwich composition like you would normally out of any ski. And as I had just kind of, kind of like wrapped up development on the MSC 107, I kind of took inspiration from that project, made it a little bit wider and focused on, you know, keeping the ski as lightweight as possible. So unfortunately I had to leave the metal out <laughs> um, because I really started to really enjoy the metal from my days with you. At yeah. But you know, I wanted to make a lighter weight version of that MSP that would tour well, but would still function and, and ski power really well. Because, like, when I got that MSP 107 done, I got an opportunity to go to Japan, and it nuked. And I was like, sweet, but I, like, I need to be here promoting this ski because it's brand new, and I'm here to help support the sales and marketing of this new ski. So I'm skiing, like, knee-deep powder. <laughs> 
in the Seiko on these MSP-107s, and I'm kind of blown away at how well they ski powder because previous to that, I thought only 120s ski powder well. Right. And so I was like, huh, like that kind of turned me on. So I was like, all right, well, we'll just make it a little bit wider, make it lighter. We'll use this rigid hard foam we just developed using algal oil um, and see how it skis. And it actually skied pretty damn well. And I was like, okay, like this could be a pathway to like maybe build a brand and then that brand be kind of like the like the show and proof of point that we can do these things and animate the technology in a way where these other product designers can then relate to it. So um, we had the idea of, of building the brand Wonder Alpine and uh, ultimately came to market with the first ski, the Intention 110. I find myself right back into the ski industry <laughs> with this whole initiative. Because um, again, it, it was and has been and will be always a materials play. Um, but a way to also re-envision the ways in which we're relying on materials to build consumer product goods. And in skis, there hasn't been a lot of change in terms of the bill of materials right. for decades. And that's largely because the raw material supply chain has been widely monopolized because we haven't seen tremendous growth in ski sales year over year. So if the, if the market's consumption is relatively flat, you're going to see consolidation with raw material supply chain. Mm -hmm. And because the materials are so unique to the application, there's, so much, there's only so much demand for variance amongst the suite of suppliers you can network with. So until you have a company like CheckerSpot that has vertically integrated molecular biology, for example, will you then actually be able to start to realize alternative materials right. to replace some of these incumbent materials that have been used in skis for decades, if not centuries? And so, yeah, we got the skis off the ground, called the Intention 110, came to market, and at that time, CheckerSpot was super motivated to like become a recognized and certified B corporation. So... Um, to be become to become B certified, there were certain initiatives that we needed to take on as an organization to prove and track our progress. And for CheckerSpot, as a molecular biology foundry, they're able to show and prove ways of deriving bio-based ingredients and educating the market because one of our initiatives is to democratize anything that we create. So if we can talk to people about our discoveries and our research and we can realize these valuable renewable oils that are derived from these organisms, we can deliver on these proof points. But with Wonder Alpine, you know, we, like any ski company, we have dumpsters of waste. And so we're trying to think about how can we as a brand alone also become B-certified because there hasn't been until that point any brand um, in skiing that, that was able to achieve B-certification. So we got, the, we got the rigid algal foam in the cores. That was a good proof point that we could use algae. And then the second opportunity was as soon as we launched that first year Intention 110 to interrogate the sidewall. Because that's where the bulk of the, of the plastic was that we were also realizing was contributing to the weight. Because if you think about like a sidewall, it has to mirror the thickness profile of a ski. But what we know about profiles of skis, anything about skis is not uniform in dimension. They're not all the same length, they're not all the same width, and they're not all the same thickness. Right. But you need this ring of plastic that mimics the thickness of that core so that you have the hydrophobicity, so no water contaminates the wood, and, mm -hmm. and you get performance, too, over edge with that, with that plastic. So we intend, obviously, first year we had to use this incumbent plastic that we sourced, but the second year we actually interrogated that application and derived to an algal um, cast urethane. And that gave us the ability to infuse a majority-based bio component because of the density of the plastic. It consumes upwards to like 65-70% of the algal oil itself. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just like we infused 5% bio-based right. content. We infused like 70 right out of the gate. 
And two, because it's a liquid material, we were able to build channels around the core of variable depth and width so that when we poured the liquid material, it would self-level and we would only consume so much of it in that process as we would ultimately realize in the end application. So rather than having to profile thick sheets of plastic down to mimic all of these profiles and contours, we're able to just build that right into the core channel itself for that material Much and realize almost, almost zero waste. And so we were able to go back to B-Lab as Wonder Alpine and say, hey, listen, not only have we infused a significant amount of bio-based content and reduced our carbon footprint with the construct of these skis, we've also been able to realize a significant waste reduction of what was just like straight to landfill waste. And so... Uh, we were able to become awarded C certification in our second year business, which oh, is awesome. so rad, you know? That's so really rad. I mean, yeah. This, and then now we're starting to network with other brands too about the use of these ingredients. And that's always been the bigger play. I mean, ever since I went over to Alon in Slovenia and that factory in Tunisia, did I realize that these factories are just huge steel buildings surrounded with dumpsters. It's such a wasteful process. Every pair of skis, I don't care who you are that you make, you make a third ski of equal weight in weight. Mm -hmm. And and these aren't like waste streams that are like easily biodegradable or easily repurposeful. Like there's there's a lot of, you know, skepticism about how much we do recycle already. But these materials are straight up thermal set plastics that are only going to go to the landfill and they're not going to deteriorate anytime soon. And so how can we try to reduce some of that impact? How can we have a solution? to a problem and then start speaking openly about the problem that we have. Cause I think a lot of people are hesitant to talk about the problem without having a solution to back it up. Right, right. And, and it's largely because they just haven't had access to different materials. You know, if you make skis, just like I learned with that supply house, you make them out of this bill of materials and here you go, mm -hmm. you know, and lucky for me, I got it all from one shop back then. But nowadays you source your plastics, everybody sources the plastics from this one company, your edges from that company. You know, you can get your fiberglass and whatnot from here and there, and, and we can start realizing the benefit of castor oil nylon to make top sheets and bases if we want, um, to an extent, I guess, bases, but top sheets certainly, which have a bio-based content, but the rest of the stuff is, is, is pretty wasteful. It's 100% petroleum-based, and as an industry where we're out trying to preserve public land and, and trying to mitigate impacts of climate change, um, to be skiing around in these toxic toys kind of feels like a disproportionate relationship. And I, and um, I, and I, so, think, I think that, sorry to interrupt Matt, but I think that's not something that a lot of people know either is you made a really good point that, um, you know, on, on the supply chain side, the manufacturing side, there's not, there's not 20 places where you get your steel edges. There's, there's two or three manufacturers in the world. You know, you're, like you said, you're, you're buying your, your sidewalls from this company, you're buying, right. you know, these materials only from a handful of companies around the world, mm -hmm. because, you know, as passionate as we all are about this industry, it's, it's, it's still a very small industry. So it, it, it doesn't, totally. you know, we, we don't have the ability to source all these materials. Um, so I think e even taking a step back a little bit more, I, I remember talking to you on the phone when you, when you left Jay and, telling me that you were going to, to check her spot. I obviously never heard of them, had no idea what they were doing. You kind of, right. you kind of ran me through it. And I was like, so what's the play? <laughs> like, dude, you're, you're, like, totally. you're, you're, totally. you're a skier. Through wait, and through. Wait, you're you're going to be a scientist. Now? Yeah. Like, dude, do you, do you, do you even like science? Like, so, um, yeah. you know, and, and you, you obviously had this in your head because the, the conversation quickly turned into, you know, talking about, these materials and you know 
man, I really think that I can find a way to use these materials within the ski industry, within manufacturing yeah. and make it a little bit more sustainable. Um, you know, and you know, so I, deep down I knew there was, there was some other play there that probably related to, to skiing. So I think, um, you know, a lot of people from the outside probably looked at that like, Whoa, what the heck is happening here? And then obviously, right. you know, a year or two, a year or two later, wonder Alpine is born, but, um, you know, I also remember talking to you after the trade show that you walked around with that, that jar. And I remember saying, man, how'd it go? Like, you know, this is, it's a <laughs> ski industry is an old school industry. Like you said, they've been doing the same yeah. thing the same way for a lot of years. And, um, I knew you'd have your work cut out for you. And you were like, people wanted to know how it smelled. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what does it smell like? Like, does it smell like pond scum or like, <laughs> I was just like, man, like, it's such a foreign way to get into it, but like I kind of felt like it was the only way to get into it. Um, was going to have to be like that deep of an entry point, you know? And like it's it's how radical is it that like there's a capital formation startup company in biotechnology that's like focusing on skiing as a first use case of these materials. It's insane. And so I'm thinking like, dude, how often do you get the opportunity to leverage your skill in what otherwise is like a super niche history, like? being a pro skier and then running a ski company, like how do you get into biotech from there? Like when that door opens, I'm like, I don't know where this one's going, but I'm walking <laughs> through it, you know? And was that, was that, was that, a, was, that a, was that a tough, was it tough to, to convince these guys to like, Hey, I, I got an idea in this tiny niche industry and I think we can make a difference. No, I mean, I share, I mean, I, I can't take 100% the credit. Like, I, I definitely put the, the, the wheels in motion, but the CEO had a passion for skiing himself and went over to Austria okay. and went through, like, a ski building, like, tourism class where, like, you make your pair of skis and stuff. And he was like, this is how skis are made? Like, this is how I would figure my grandfather's skis were made. Like, <laughs> this is what you got? And then he went to ISPO as just out of curiosity while he was starting to put the pieces together to start this business and just look at the overall outdoor market and, the only thing that was really being debuted at the time in the ski hall was like some electronic vibration sensors, which echo back to our, to our VAS days right. with K2 and the light flashing on? Light. light on. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and he was like, huh, like, I think actually biotechnology can help this space if I can find somebody that can actually bring it to, bring it to market. And, and so I was in an opportune time where I had still kind of not fully, um, transitioned out of forefront but i was i was definitely interested in exploring other opportunities and you know it was early enough too where i still had access to my my core team and so like i was able to bring um you know a veteran um member of the forefront community over with me jeremy hanley who carries service for us and then like within a few months of launch i was able to announce that we also brought on pep Fujis, who you know to his own respect like left k2 after nearly two decades of service crazy and um, I didn't have anything for him at Forefront. I mean, you guys heard the story. Like, he had all that and more from K2, you know, with one of the, probably the most successful pro model skis ever ever to be made. Yep. Um, and so, you know, he was really well situated over there. But, you know, they were still just memorializing the poster boy from, you know, Oakley's 1242 film. And I'm like, well, I see a 40-year-old dad of three children <laughs> who is an incredible marketer and has great business tax. And so, you know, I was able to bring him out to Alameda, which is, was uh, now where we have our headquarters and, and show him biotechnology. And I was like, hey, Pep, like, 
you can take it or leave it, but like how often do you get an opportunity to leverage what you've learned as a pro skier in a completely different industry and still, you know, play a role that's very relevant to your path. And so he leads product and he leads product and marketing. And I, and I think he's doing an absolutely fantastic job and his contribution to the industry is much more well-rounded than it would have been had he stayed where he was. So it's cool to be able to bring people from the industry in with me um, and, and, you know, to, to network with a lot of, uh, familiar faces as we as we look to disrupt supply chain um, and, and and look to, to, to interrogate a little deeper the carbon impact that we're having as an industry um, and to see also where the technology can go. I mean, this is, again, first use case examples, but we're, we're already in textile finishes. We've got a partnership with Gore that's already been announced. Um, we're working with a lot of other companies under NDAs on and use of the materials that we already have and or in co-developing future materials. Um, I mean, our dependency on oil and plastics isn't going away. Uh, I made skis with wood sidewalls. Uh, they work up until a certain point. And, uh, and so as, as enthusiastic outdoor participants, you know, we have a high demand of performance. Um, but we also have this moral guilt that we're not necessarily um, reducing the impact that we're having on the planet. And so we're trying to create solutions for people that can still see optimized performance, but with a leaner carbon impact. And it's cool that we can now interrogate these organisms' oil profiles in helping us arrive to these modern chemistries that make these cool plastics. So that's that's kind of how the whole thing is, has spun around, and, and I'm back to building again. I got <laughs> yeah. We we just introduced our 29th member to the team in Salt Lake alone, which is the kind of the geography that I manage. So you have, um, for you have the a company. facility in Salt Lake now as well, right? Absolutely. So that was one of the big things too. Was like, no, stay there. They're like, we have, we have, you know, really rich resource of academia and science um, that we're going to leverage in our headquarters in, in Alameda. And their team's about equal size, about 30 people. Um, but they're like, no, you build out your facility in Salt Lake and leverage the industrialization of that market. And, and I've learned over the years that Salt Lake actually is a bit of a crossroads of the West in terms of the composites industry. So we're actually really well situated with, with local supply chain. Um, in, in the work that we're currently doing with skis, launching snowboards this summer, um, and then there's cut and sew apparel um, that's not far behind it uh, with our textile finishes. So uh, I've been, you know, gifted the opportunity to lead this team, and we now have a facility that, that's kind of taking on that of, like, the, the nature of a campus, uh, 37,000 square feet. Wow. I've got 20, 29 people here on the team. Uh, we have material science. Uh, we have full-scale full, full scale production. We have a full commercial team with marketing and branding. We're going to be debuting our first storefront here um, before long. So anybody visiting out of town who want to come in and get a better look at Wonder Alpine, um, awesome. there'll be a door up front that you can Super walk on sweet. through. So, yeah, and then we're you know we're we're still ski turn in the morning. You know, I'm going up for a Dom Patrol tomorrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that so it's it's cool. You know, it's, it's it's a good zone. You could say that escalated pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you went from, from launching, launching wonder with, with this one ski, the intention 110. you've got, what do you have? You have a dozen, a dozen ski models or so now snowboards. Coming yep, out. Yeah. We, yeah. Huge team. Yeah. It's becoming, a, yeah, it's becoming a cool thing. And, um, you know, it's cool to be able to like now think back to the start of this conversation and, and how maybe for the listeners too, for me, certainly it has helped kind of understand the building blocks. Like, none of this feels like it's just like a random turn, you know. It all feels mm-hmm. very congruent with the path that we were on. That Again, I mean, the path 
started at like Camp of Champions. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, <laughs> dude, like these kids should be able to do more than they're currently like able to do. And like, let's just bend the tails up, and all of a sudden, now it's like, let's, let's just use some algal oil. Like, I mean, it's like it just could. Where are we going to be at in 10 more years? Yeah. Like, I can't wait. Like, I don't want to ever die. Like, this is too fun, man. Camp of Champions. This is so sick. Camp of Champions, um, State Farm's Garage. Yeah. Uh, Tunisia, uh, the Desert. The Desert. Yeah. Uh, now, um, right. Bo- Boston Ski Show. Boston Ski Show. And now, Oils. Yeah. Algae Oils. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's we been, could do a part a- two. Oh, we should. We could do a part two. We could do a part two just about the Boston Expo Ski Fair because... Um, that was a very impactful experience for myself as well. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, it's a very impactful experience for George and I as well on like a different level. So we could we could probably do a whole hour and a yeah. half of just talking about like what happened at the Boston Ski and Snowboard Expo. It's just like wild shit. Wild. It's <laughs> cool, man. Have you guys figured out how to use algae in your uh, in your dirt bike yet? Uh, no, no, not yet. There's some really good progress being made with electric dirt bikes, though. There's bikes coming to market that have, like, 85 horsepower. Um, so, I, I, I think, like, as much as we've seen e-bikes boom yep. in recent in recent months, uh, certainly years, um, uh, and as well as, like, seeing moto shops all now carrying e-bikes and seeing moto brands, yeah. um, getting into the accessories business of, of e-bikes, um, it's, it's obviously um, we're not too far out of having some really radical and very capable um, electric dirt bikes. Yeah. And, for, um, and so, for, for those that don't know, not only is Matt a badass skier, he's a badass motocross rider, which in my opinion, you picked up way too late in life. That is just, yeah. it just really beats the body up. Um, but not, yeah. Not, yeah. not only is Matt a badass uh, motocross rider, but your 12 year old son Rune is, yeah is shredding oh dude he's in shredding yeah 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 Yeah. it's it's cool um have a little sidekick we were working in the shop late last night on the bikes actually so um it's it's fun to relive those you know obviously the relive all these moments again through the eyes of your child and um we've had a lot of a lot of fun skiing and, and riding and i just try and introduce him to seeing um, I was really into team sports as a kid um, because that's what everybody did in, in you know northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin. It was all about baseball, basketball, football. I snuck out of basketball to ski, of course, but everything was team centric until basically senior year, and then it all went away. You know, I went to college and like I wasn't trying out for University of Minnesota's football team. You know, like I was in the dorms with those people. They were a completely different dimension than I was. Like we all played the same Our sport, but they were they were. Yeah, they were massive. So I, I realized my place on earth wasn't going to be team sports once school was over. So I turned, you know, just obviously to skating in, in the summers and skiing in the winters um, was still my primary drive. And obviously, like, dirt bikes were, have always been there. You can't be from Wisconsin and not ride dirt bikes. So, um, you know, those those activities just continue to carry me on and, and continue to inspire me athletically. Um, and now, yeah, competing, you know, at a pretty high level with that stuff, it's it's just part of the part of the trajectory. But uh, with my son, I'm trying to introduce him to these individual sports, you know, as he's young. So introducing him to, to moto at a young age, because I know that he's going to take a similar course, I'm sure, with team sports through his school. But, you know, once he becomes an adult and, and starts a life of his own, he and I will always be able to throw a leg over a dirt bike and go ride. Right. And, um, and so just trying to put in the work to have that experience um, for him and I long term. So 
no, it's been, it's been killer, and and there's going to be a lot of innovation in that in that space as as we see with everything around us today. So can't wait for that, and um, grateful to at least be playing a small role of that team industry. Very cool, very cool. Well, Matt, appreciate the time today. Uh, thanks for being yeah, here guys. with us, and I think we're all stoked to see what Wonder can become, man. Uh, all the technology, yeah. it's it's super rad stuff. So um, looking forward to yeah. it. All right, guys. Well, hey, it's been my pleasure to spend the morning with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks thanks so much. Talk soon. Thanks. All right. Later, boys. Later. Bye, everybody.